Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Drunken PM Radio. You're probably listening to this on projectmanagement.com. I'd like to thank them once again for being a sponsor of the podcast. Brand new year. Going to start out with a, a very interesting topic and somebody that I've never spoken with before. So John Cutler is here. John, thanks for taking time out of your holidays to do the interview. Uh, yeah, no problem. It's it's 2018. Are you excited? Yeah. <laughs> I am I am excited, yes, that I'm in my house <laughs> Not well, on a plane somewhere. It's nice. <laughs> well, this is a good way to kick off. Like, let's just, just jump straight into the podcast. So Yeah, so well, and <laughs> and the topic that we're gonna talk about is is very apropos to that too, because it's something that I will be encouraging all my students to work on trying to fix. So John, how would you describe the work that you do or how what kind of like background stuff can you give to folks to to let them know who you are before we start talking about your articles? Sure. Uh Let's see where to begin. I, I, I kind of half wasted away my twenties and also had a, an amazing time, uh, as a touring musician actually. Ah, and, okay. uh, and I, I had a, a video game company too. I made a bartending CD-ROM game. They, they called them CD-ROM games, uh, at Back the time. The and so that was called last call. So that was a great name for you. You, you can't do like last call too. So uh, that was a learning right then. Don't <laughs> don't call your game last call. Um, okay. So yeah, I did. I I had I did that in my twenties, and I I was sort of involved in business analyst stuff. And then, you know, during while I wasn't on tour, I would do odd jobs. Uh, you know, I rode bicycle taxis and did uh, you know PowerPoint presentations and uh, worked in investment banks and different things. So yeah, that was my twenties, and then. And then I got more into just, you know, I kind of settled down a little bit and I got more involved in just general product management roles. Uh, recently, I segued for a bit into UX research, which was amazingly rewarding. It was okay. great fun. So I kind of span these different uh, worlds, but, you know, you could say I'm a product nut and product manager uh, with a strong sense of UX. And... For some reason, too, I've also I'm usually the the sort of product manager or UX person in the room who can most relate to where the developers are at with their particular challenge. I'm not a um. I had a startup or two where I got involved in you know software development myself, but uh, I you know I can't claim that I am a software developer as my friends are. Okay. Um, I'm kind of like a hack, <laughs> but. Uh, for some reason, I've always been able to relate to their particular challenge. And so even on gigs that I have, I, I'm normally, you know, I'm I'm usually the most kind of technical or at least sort of technically oriented person of the non-technical people in the room. Uh, so that's kind of bubbled up lately in the last couple of years where I find myself too writing a fair amount about agile or continuous improvement or even some DevOps stuff. Uh so I, I find myself very interested in those things too. So anyway, I'm all across the board <laughs> with these things. And then I um I guess I write a lot too. So I I got very involved in writing blog posts. I think I probably have two hundred and eighty of them up there now on Medium. And how long ago did you start? Oh man, it's about two years ago or a year and a half, okay. two years ago. I think I figured out that I write one every five days, every three to That's five a days, lot. something like yeah. that. Uh, probably, yeah, more frequently than every week. It has to be more frequently than every week. So that's that's what I do. And, and frankly, a lot of those posts are just me working through my own thought process, too. You know, it's uh, I can never really plan which post resonates with people, but most of them resonate with me, at least at that time. But it it's it's a funny thing. I'm definitely not like a professional blogger. 
uh, type. You, you may not be a professional blogger, but you're putting a lot of professional bloggers to shame. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the trick for all of us, right? Just just sort of do it, and then, then you end up well, being good at it. <laughs> but you just one of the things you just said I think is really important, because it is, at least for me with the podcast, it's one of the things that drives me is it's my own interest. Like, I'm chasing yeah. my own interests. Yeah. Um, so before we kind of go into the main topic, I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned that you were a touring musician. So I have a question for you that is totally unrelated to the interview. But from that part of your life, which what are the lessons that you learned there that have the greatest impact on the work that you do now, working with teams or building products? Oh, wow. That's an awesome question. Um, it's Wow, that would be a great blog post. <laughs> See, I'm always thinking about it. Uh, yeah, but you know, we'll write it right now and then we'll transcribe it. That's the, there you the go. Trick. You know, I think, well, one thing is that you're, you're just in close proximity to very creative, driven, disciplined in their own way. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of lack of discipline too, trust me. But, you know, there's a certain drive with the people around you, um, which is... I, I actually even use that analogy sometimes. I'll remark around those days of playing in bands and talk about how, you know, creating software is like being with a group of really, you know, f fun, frustrating, tempestuous, crazy people. You know, yeah. th that's what it feels like. The touring side of it was interesting because you just have to gut it out and show up. You know, you, you can't you'll go into situations that are very far from ideal and you just have to work through it and try to put on a good show, uh, that was a learning. You also learn too, that you always have to, you know, triple check everything, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you bring like seven versions of each cable and each sort of transformer that you have. Yeah, and, tons of batteries for the pedals. And yeah, all exactly. So, th so there was that. I think there's something, um, about, there's actually, I, I, I can never find the, uh, the blog post when I mean to, but there's a great article about Miles Davis and the creative process. And I think that, you know, I think that software development is kind of a creative pursuit. Um, there's certainly some very structured engineering, you know, f parts to it. But you're, a lot of times it does feel like you're thrown into a 14-passenger van with a bunch of yeah. crazy people. Um, when I was doing it, you know, we didn't have like a lot. I remember sitting there with my, my Nokia phone tethered to the laptop trying to, and I would say, guys, there's this amazing thing. We can book a hotel tonight on the computer and people will be like, <laughs> no way that. you can't do that. And you will just have to roll in there. So I don't know that, that part was, you know, I was actually the, you know, I was play instruments, but I was usually the, t the tour manager too, because everyone okay. else was just kind of blotto by the end of the night. And, right. and there needed to be like that one responsible guy. So I should have known that I had a little bit of product manager in me at or that project point manager too. or project manager. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely, yeah, you know, yeah. Showing up is definitely a project. I'll give it that. <laughs> <laughs> so I always I, in my classes I talk a lot about uh, this drummer that I used to play with we played together for years and it got to the point where when we would get on stage we never spoke like we didn't need to do that anymore and when I talk about high performing teams I'm like that's to me that's what it's like when you have this other way of communicating and you don't need all those rules and all those extra discussions yep. that is um, a great example you know it's interesting about too I was talking to a friend as well is almost every band that I played with and even the you know those of us who are still playing now even when you get good at that the way you disrupt yourself is to add new constraints and yeah. new things and that's how you actually get 
you, you actually have to try to put yourself in a place of ignorance where you don't know, you know, like pick up an instrument you've never played before or throw yourself into learning how to, you know, use Pro Tools or anything like that. So it's kind of interesting that, that it's, there is this sort of, you, it's, there's always an imposter syndrome, no matter how yeah. good you get. Well, you need the irritant to create the pearl. I mean, you right. have to have something to make, you know. The yeah, and so I think that's, as you become whatever more high performing, you also become more adept at figuring out how to disrupt your flow and, and get different perspectives. So I find that interesting. And being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> All right. So that was the big segue thing. So thank you for answering the question. So um, you post a lot of stuff. You had a post a few a week or two ago about um, called Flow Decoupling Cadences and Fixed Length Sprints. Um, so before I start having at you with questions, how would you summarize that, kind of what your main points were for somebody who has not had the chance to either watch the video or read the post yet? I think to summarize it, I would say that what fascinates me about the work we do, whether it's in sprints or not using sprints, is that there's this just massive spectrum of decomposing your work. And you deal with this a lot as a product manager. So, you know, the company needs to move some revenue metric. And I think that changing customer behavior will impact that revenue metric. And I think that by generally allowing this piece of functionality, we can move that metric. And I think that by adjusting these more specific features that we can move that particular behavior. And I, you know, by, by the end of the story, you're nine levels deep. And the problem is for all the members to design and develop some very specific feature or even function or call. Yeah. You know, you go really deep. So one of the, and, and this is a roundabout way of saying that I think one of the inspirations for that post is that in my mind, you know, there are, there are many great human reasons to do something on a cadence and there's many great human reasons to break up our work and work really small. Yeah. And there's many very important reasons for tying the small work you're doing to the big things. I wrote a post a long time ago called 12 signs you're working in a future factory. And it was about teams that are incredibly good at outputting features, okay. but they're not really connected to the outcomes of the business. So anyway, what I was trying to get at with that particular piece is that if you if you step away from the dogma of what's supposed to be an epic or a story or a task, or if you start to think what, you know, this is a sprint and this is a, you know, uh, this is a mini project that we're doing, it really is about a mixture of cadence things that you do on every week or every day or every hour, you know, for continuous integration or whatever, or every yeah. month or every year. And it's about other things that just are going to overlap whatever time boxes we create. So it's like working small, working effectively. So, you know, you're going to have work that spans three months or one month or two months. And that's what I was trying to explore. It's sort of a big topic, but my whole idea was, uh, can we challenge ourselves to strip away the dogma of what we're doing, then apply the right forcing functions at the right times and in the right ways to be effective with our work. I, I, I don't okay. know if that made sense, but that was generally the direction I was going. Well, I think it does. It's a really good setup. So before I start kind of picking at it, what is the, what is the takeaway that you want people to have? Because you do have a way of summarizing it at the end in both the post and the video. Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway is that what we're doing is 
we have to figure out how to work small, right? Okay. We have to figure out how to break down work into the smallest possible pieces that we can talk about, that we can pair on, that we can do things. And we have to think about value. We have to think about how the small things are themselves valuable and contribute to things that are valuable. And then we have to think about how we're going to continuously improve on how we work and, you know, tweak what we're doing and bubble up blockers and, uh, you know, improve. So there's those okay. learning aspects of what we're doing. So the main point that I'd want people to take away from this is always try to step back from the particular dogma of what you're doing because someone said, you know, you read about this all the time on, you know, you're Googling some advice column on Agile and someone is saying, you know, uh, when this happens and when the team is doing this, how do I put this in JIRA to split the things up so yeah. the report will look <laughs> like this tools. particular way? Um, and, you know, the responses even from people in the Agile community, you know, they're trying to help. They're like, well, you might want to split the story and you might want to do that. At the end of the day, if you take the step back, what I'd want to encourage people to do is try to try to understand the why behind the practices you have and then try to think about how you can kind of decouple the things to make it work for you i guess okay. that that's generally what i was thinking about okay so so at a very basic level we're talking about a time boxed event a sprint which could be two to four weeks um and one of the things you you kind of touch on in the beginning is that people fail sprints all the time and they feel bad and they want to drag stuff into the next sprint or, or like you just mentioned they might want to try to split it at the end and it, all of it is like this slippery slope to what's the point of even having sprints right right i think and that's that's a great point what job do we hire the sprint for and and that's, that's a, a really great good question. way to put it so yeah that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's like a jobs it. to be done approach like yeah. Hey, we've got this. I, I think in terms of forcing functions and constraints and how can we make it safe to use forcing functions in the way they were designed, right? Okay. So the sprint is a forcing function. It's a designed part of our work process. Okay. And so the question is, what do we hire it to do? Now, I would say, that, you know, if you asked a class that, then you would get many, many, many reasons. And some of them would be like, sprints let us check into the business every two weeks. Or, you know, sprints do any number of things. You'd find a hundred reasons for things that sprints do. Based on my observations, it's a forcing function that we use to uh, reflect on our work, reflect on how we're working, to force us to create a potentially re uh, releasable increment of the okay. software. And so my problem's not actually so much with the idea that you have fixed sprints. My, my, what I usually tell teams is, uh, what would it take for you to just keep adjusting until you never fail to sprint. That, that's where I have a pretty contrarian view of it because I think you have a forcing function um, and you're supposed to act based on that forcing function. If the team does nothing based on what it learned in the sprint, if it just keeps yeah. on charging away down the Gantt chart divided into 52 little boxes, yeah. it's not learning. It's not changing right. anything. <laughs> so um, that's... So what, what job I think about hiring the sprint to do is we hire it as a forcing function, as a catalyst for continuous improvement and reflection, and as a way, as a risk mitigator to keep us working small. Okay. And my major sort of hypothesis or, you know, whatever in the piece is there are actually other ways to force yourself to work small, and there actually are other ways to help you reflect 
for example, you could do a retro every week, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or yeah, I did an interview with with Ron Jeffries and Chet Hendrickson um, at the conference last summer, and they the question was, how do I make everything a one? Because that's their whole contention. Yeah. And they have a whole bunch of practices around, like, if it's going to take longer than a day or it needs more than one acceptance criteria, it's too big, so we have to break it down. Right, 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 right. Um, right. To me, those all these all these constraints, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I guess I, I have a more... I don't know if it's maybe single-minded view of it, but but that time box to me is more about it's a way to sharpen your discipline. Like if you right. can't hit the box, okay, you can't hit the box. Get better at it. Like what do you have to – to me, that I, I hire it just to sharpen the knife and get better at fitting in the box. So maybe maybe we sort of see it the same way in that regard. I mean I, I – my belief is that if you're going to hire a forcing function, work with it with discipline. Yeah. Right. Make it safe to do that. Now, I understand where folks like Ron and other people are coming from in the sense that their their concern is if you don't work in terms of sprints, you know, if you let that sort of meaningful and valuable thing go eight days instead of five days, that you're kind of opening up a whole world of non-discipline. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing I have communicating is that I'm not proposing an environment where there's a lack of discipline, right? Well, it's like, it would be like an unlimited budget. We can just keep building the thing forever or we can say, nope, we got $100. Right. What can you do with that? And and actually, it's funny because in some ways, I advocate for far more extreme things. Like I am a big proponent of one-day sprints, for example. Wow, okay. And I'm a big proponent of, if you try to do a week, you know, I think that two week-long sprints for beginner teams are too long. Because okay. because there's so much variation in those environments for beginner teams, you know, production issues, distractions, other people kind of in, in that the forcing function then can't do its job. You know, yeah. like what happened on day three, you're going to reflect on on day 14. And that's difficult. That's where a whip constraint, a work in progress constraint is helpful because it forces you to deal with it right now instead of later. So, so maybe a simple parallel would be a, a child on a learning, trying to learn how to ride on two wheels. Instead of, instead of letting them fall down seven times before you ask them what's going wrong, you stop them after every time they fall down. Correct. R- right. Okay. Exactly. Or, you know, you come up with a device like the push bike, right? That like, that, that yeah. informs. So it's kind of interesting if you look at human factors and if you look at, uh, you know, the design of kind of safety systems, the idea of a forcing function, and I love a quote, it says that a forcing function is something that causes us to step out of automatic thought and deliberately consider and learn in the moment and then take the right path. Okay. But what's fascinating about it is they stress much more the idea of breaking out of automatic thought and and sort of considering the situation than they do necessarily that you're going to you know force someone down a particular path. And so anyway, so back to these sort of contrarian things, um, I would much rather a team does a one-week sprint or a one-day sprint than a two-week sprint because at least in my observation, you know, two weeks is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> anything can happen in two weeks. Now, let's say that the team has trouble getting anything done in two weeks. I agree with Ron and others that, like, shorten it. You know, do less. Okay. And imagine- well, that's so that's so hold on, because that's a really important question. Is it about the length of the sprint or is it about the size of the work? You know, I would say that, I mean, let's think, well, here, let's use the example. Let's say that a two week sprint fails, quote unquote fails. 
Now, the question is, can the team get ridiculously uncomfortable? Imagine if the next sprint, two out of the five people were basically slack. They didn't take on tasks uh -huh. and they waited to pair when they were needed. Cool. Now, the two week sprint in that sense has then triggered a kind of behavior that's going to be uncomfortable. The business yeah. won't like it. It runs counter to every single person's intuition about what you're supposed to do. But that's what you need. To, like, that's what you need to do to try to for the forcing function to produce its benefit. What what do teams do, though? They, they rationalize. Well, it didn't work out because we had that one production issue. But that was rare, isn't it? OK. Uh, and Joe took a sick day, which, you know, the combination of a sick day, a production issue and an unexpected meeting is pretty much a recipe for any sprint to fail unless the team has baked a ton of slack. Right. and or all the individual items they're producing are releasable and independent, at which point you could say you had partial, quote unquote, partial success in your sprint. Yeah. Right? So anyway, so that's, do you see where I'm going with it? That, that yeah. in essence, it's like, and I think this is what, you know, Ron or other people misunderstand. I'm not, uh, you know, anti-discipline, right? I believe that you have to create safety to have discipline. Um, what I realize is that the forcing functions as designed and as often abused by the business, yeah, fail well, to produce or the abused desired, by the team. Or they could be abused team. by the team. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely abused by the team. So yeah, I mean, keep breaking it down. Like imagine a two-week sprint where only one out of the four people actually, you know, you had, uh, you know, you're like, well, over the last, you know, eight sprints, you've done between whatever, you know, five stories and ten stories, but you fail seventy percent of the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, do two. Oh my yeah. God, that's the end of the world. The whole project's going to come to a screeching halt, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's that's my that's my thought. And part of this, you know, we talking about the music. Like when you can't get through the, there's two types of musicians, right? There's like, the there's the ones who like when they can't get through it, they just keep blazing away at the tempo, and try to like hopefully they'll figure it out. Or there's the people who slow down the tempo of the song until they can nail it. And actually, which is horror. I'm actually going through that right now because I'm trying to relearn some like basic fundamental stuff that I never got down. And when it's like played at 60 beats a minute, I'm like, this is driving me insane. Like, oh, I can't totally. play that slow. But that's a very important thing. Going slow is important. Yeah. And now, you know, playing it at tempo is smart too. You know, like you're going to eventually have to play it at tempo, you know, to do that stuff. But both are valid forcing functions. What what don't yeah. we want to see? We don't want to see the, you know, the 16-year-old trying to play like hot licks, you know, from yeah. some like tapping guitar thing and try a thousand times to play it at tempo and just suck every time. Slop all over the <laughs> yeah. place, yeah. You know, they're not getting good. But some skilled musicians play at tempo and then within six reps of playing it at tempo, they figure out how to do it. Yeah. So, you know, both are valid. Uh, forcing functions to do those things. So, but a brand new team does not have the skills necessary, despite what they will probably think, to just walk in and you know play it at full speed, right out of the gate and get it after four or five. Times. Right, and I mean, also the thing is the diagnosis side of it, and this is where I get kind of interested in ways that we can help teams and in instructional design and different things like that. That imagine a you know, a patient walks into your office and they're, you know, complaining of abdominal pains and a doctor knows the questions to ask to diagnose what happened, right? Yeah. A team gets through a two-week sprint 
and it's trying to unpack what happened and they haven't, you know, over their life spent two decades under trying to understand what happens. And there's a lot of personal issues and trust issues and maybe safety issues and things like that. And suddenly they've diagnosed it as, um, you know, new team, team member X doesn't work hard enough, but that's not safe to mention in retro. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, well, if we just had better plans and if we just spent, you know, a whole day grooming the stories, we would have been better off. Now, sometimes that's the correct diagnosis, right? Right. <laughs> you know, to do those things. So I think, you know, the question for us as people trying to help teams is how can you kind of teach these heuristics to guide them from the forcing function to the action Yeah. Um, in a way that makes sense? And, you know, I think that's an area where Scrum and Scrum patterns are interesting. Like the Scrum guide itself by design doesn't really give a lot of that kind of diagnosis information that's baked into a lot of the scrum patterns that exist out there in the world. The challenge I have with a lot of scrum patterns is that for every two good ones I see, I see a bad one. (laughs) Well, so that's what's so interesting to me is I see all these people like bitching about scrum all over the place. And when you dig into it, it's never actually scrum, right? It's just sloppy practice of scrum. Yeah. and, And it's funny, like, I think that there is totally a middle ground viewpoint on this, which is every framework has design decisions. Yeah. The language of the scrum guide, if I, I'll be honest, I'll show it to like developers or UX folk or whoever. Yeah. And they'll say like, did an ex military person write this? And well, actually, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and they'll also say, and interestingly, a UX person said the other day, I, I see a lot of fear in this. I see a lot yeah. of fear. And I asked, but them, like, and so wait, hold on one second yeah. though, because from a project management standpoint, which is my background, yeah. I look at a document like that and think they're not scared enough. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> well, I think that, that, and this is the, you know, this is what makes this such a fun thing that we're doing, right? Like, yeah. so here's a UX person who designs things, and they are saying, I sense a lot of fear in the design of this. Like, it's prescriptive in ways that suggest that extra control or extra concern is being placed here. So an example on the scrum guide would be something like, you know, until recently it was like product owner, don't speak up in this meeting. You can't talk in this meeting. Now right. it's, that's been changed. You know, I didn't, I haven't seen that recently in the latest version, but to anyone looking at that design decision, you would say like, wait a second, you have a value of respect or whatever the, you know, the, 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 the five, there's a number of values in scrum. Yeah. Five values. And you'd be like, well, do you need to, tell someone to talk or not talk, you already have a value of respect. So the UX person pointed out, and I, this is amazing because I, I have talked about this and here's another designer talking about that. And they're like, yeah. what's the minimal amount of design you can create to get the desired action? And then she said, well, this was probably abused a lot and there was fear. That's why they added the part that said that. Well, or it could go back to your previous question of what do you hire the daily scrum for? And I would say for the team members to sync up. Right. Maybe there's a blend between how it was abused for them to sync up and somebody who didn't really understand their product on a role trying to turn it into a Yeah, I mean, meeting. there's so many ways for abuse. And these are, you know, socio-technical systems, right? Like this is not like, I think in 2017, there was not one plain fatality commercial airliner fatality in 2017. Really? Yeah. I saw that the other day. I mean, 
and think how amazing, I mean, I don't know what the caveat is to it, but it was sort of, you know, touted as like, we, we sort of figure out how to make something safe, right? And yeah. there are a lot of checklists in making planes happen. There's a lot of interesting safety science that goes into making, reducing those numbers of things. Uh, you know, like right now there is a, tr there is a plane crash on a scrum team in this country. Yeah. <laughs> There's 50 of them, right? So it's messy systems, obviously, which which get in our way. But I think one takeaway for people, you know, thinking about this as a sort of way to boil this down is every framework makes sort of certain design decisions. And as users, we hire these parts of the, th you know, the way the things that we do to, to achieve a certain outcome. Okay. And... The, those outcomes can vary depending on the teams. Like things can be multi-purpose. You know, your reason to hire a sprint might not be my reason to hire a sprint. Yeah. But one of the important things is, do A, do you know potential reasons why you might hire it? <laughs> and then B, do you know how to support that reason? So in the case of a sprint, as a scrum master or as a business, do you understand that like when the alarm bells fire at the end of the sprint, something has to change and it likely will make people uncomfortable and you have to be there to create a safe, supportive environment to make sure that that can happen. Yeah. Um, and, and forget about sprints versus no sprints or whatever for a second, like whip constraints are the same way. If you put right. a work in progress constraint, it, it's designed a little differently. It's designed to be actually in a way, a more forceful forcing function, if you could say that, but uh, plenty of teams put a whip in and then before you know it, there's like seven items blocked up there and there's eight things instead of two. Well, it's not, you're not using the tool as designed. <laughs> well, so is it, is it fair to say then that the, the basic, like one maybe underlying idea is that regardless of whether you're sticking with a one day sprint or a one week sprint or a two week sprint or a one month sprint, or you're jumping back and forth, you have to be intentional about understanding why you're using a specific practice, right? What what you want to get out of it, and then be thoughtful and inspect and adapt. Are you actually getting it and making sure you're using it to improve? Absolutely. And I think this is again where I think that my particular style, I think, with teams is to try to invite the team members into that calculus, right? Okay. Like like try to, I believe that even beginner teams, if you say to them like, well, here's what we hire a sprint to do. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, I don't want to impose this on you. I'm suggesting it because it's been proven to be pretty valuable in the past. Same with a whip, you know, with a whip limit or whatever. Um, I need your partnership in this to understand when it's doing its job or not. Um, and if it's not doing its, its job, then we need to reflect on that. Yeah. Um, to understand why it's doing it. So I believe in engaging the team in the kind of, you know, you see this a lot, like in, in Toyota production system, employees were trained to problem solve, generic problem solving. Right. And then they were able to apply it to many different, you know, continuous improvement problems within the sort of the factory. And so I do feel that there's a little, like sometimes we do impose, just because you or I know the design, and we impose it on a team, I think we miss the opportunity to engage the team as partners uh, yeah. in, in, that, in that process. A great example of that is, is sort of a scrum master or any coach trying to help the team. 
you have to be able to figure out how to push back on the business and the team when they're abusing things. Okay. Um, when the business is abusing sprints for something or, or when the team is abusing things, you need to be able to push back up and say, I'm not trying to challenge your intent here, but you're using the thing wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'm weird with all this stuff. Thanks for well, sticking no, but with I think, So as you were talking about, I was thinking, you know, if the companies were asked, so what are you hiring Agile to do for you? Or what are you yeah. hiring? You know, half of them would be like, well, I want a trophy wife. So I just need this shiny thing to stand in the corner and pretend it's useful. Right. Um, that's what a lot of people are, you know, unfortunately it turns into from a practical standpoint, that's what they uh, use this stuff for. I feel I fear that it's also anytime you have my, my my theory on this is anytime you have something useful, whether it's DevOps or Kanban or Scrum or Agile or anything like that, it's going to be sold. Yeah. Right. And anytime you sell something or music or music. Right. Exactly. Anytime you sell something or market it, you're going to have that weird mix of distilling it selling it maybe overselling it and then have to be in a position where someone wants it and then expects you to drop you in and install it yeah um, because that's how a lot of people think that's how we think about our exercise routines that's how we think about quitting smoking or that's how we think about anything i mean it's a pretty human trait yeah to do that so it. so i think that the in general anytime you have something sold you're going to get this dynamic of many dynamics. You're going to get the purists saying, oh my God, remember 15 years ago how, you know, humane all this was. You're going to get- Back the, in the day. Back in the day. You're going to get people <laughs> saying, um, you know, when there was real indie music. Um, yeah, when get, nobody knew about this thing, it was the yeah. best. Now <laughs> that people use it, it sucks. Now that people use it, it sucks. You're also going to get people who, uh, you know, are, there's some people who are like, well, just see the good in it. You know, like there'll be bad stuff happening right in front of you. And they'll just say, well, see the good in it. You'll get the people who, you know, mix and want to mix and match patterns and don't like anyone telling them what to do. You're going to get all sorts of things, but selling yeah. it specifically, I think one, one thing I've noticed is the dialogue around agile and scrum is very driven, at least on Twitter and other places by the people selling it yeah. and, or having to teach it which may or may not be similar to, and, and I know this for, for because, because in my blog, I attract a lot of people who are like self-learners and people trying yeah. to do things on their team. Their narrative is way different. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> they don't care yeah, about Yeah, they just want to get stuff done. <laughs> you know, they want to see the pattern. They, they are, um, I don't know if this helps, but I've had this mental model recently. And, and people might relate to it, but I kind of feel that there's the seekers. There's the people who love to like mix and match patterns, invent their own patterns. They have to understand yeah. the why they have to understand the first principles. And then you have what I would call like the, um, you know, these are like professional pattern matchers, which are, they, they'll look out and say, well, what problem do I have? How are people solving the problem? I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'm not a methodologist, right? Yeah. But I just want to kind of mix and match. So they, they have the skill of mixing and matching, but then, you know, then they do that. Then you have a third type of person, which is, uh, you know, oh my God, I'm freaking out. Like, unless it, it needs to be a total success, I need to know that my buddy's company used it <laughs> successfully. And I will just pay for the consultants to come in, but only if you can guarantee that it's going to work and I'll, you know, keep my job and keep my, you know, standing yeah, with the company. Yeah, they're paying to make the fear go away. And then you have the, the fourth person, which is, 
you all are suckers. I know best. <laughs> and yeah. I don't need, you know, all of, all of this is made up anyway. And it's just common sense. And, you know, my way is the right way. So I think that between those four people, <laughs> like yeah. four like big types of people, one helpful thing for maybe people on the, the, you know, the podcast is always know, try to, try to figure out who you're talking to among those types, because, you know, when I'm shooting the crap with Ron Jeffries or Martin Burns or any of those people on Twitter, it's kind of like the seekers getting around around the campfire. Right? Yeah. Um, so know your audience. You know, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of words, but hopefully that made some sense. No, I, I, so that's an important thing, I think, to understand um, when you're talking to somebody, if it is a voice that is somebody who's been around for a really long time, done this a whole bunch, or if it's somebody who's a little more sophomoric or somebody who is just trying to, like you said, prepackage the stuff, um, that's an important thing. It's a, I know a lot of people, too. Like Some of the strongest leaders and executives I know are of the pattern matching type. They don't really have the time to be a methodologist. Yeah. In inventing new frameworks. And I have a lot of, res I, I find myself a little bit more of this. I'm sort of in the middle between those sort of seeker pattern matching things, but yeah, I find that those are some of the best leaders I know. They're not wasting a lot of time, but they're open. They're open to the idea that, um, that their competitor might be doing things and they're the type to get in the car and go out and visit a bunch of their other friends and other leader friends or C-level people and visit their companies and learn more about what they're doing. Um, you know, th those types. So I don't know. Yeah, there's, they have there's... that kind of child mindset approach yeah. to things. Yeah, cool. It's all good. <laughs> so I, I promised to keep this within a certain time box and I want to respect that, especially given the topic, but I had two tactical things that I wanted to ask you about from your article. Um, in the article, you talked about prioritizing goals and I, and I'm, and I'm just checking in on this. Were you suggesting that like we would have a sprint goal in a product backlog, should we be filling it with goals instead of specific features? Oh, that's what I would love. That's, that's okay. if, if when I'm in charge, that's how it works. You know, okay, so, like, I, that, again, this is about that decomposition question, right? Like, yeah. just because I'm suggesting that doesn't mean that at some point someone's not going to figure out a potential solution or experiment to run towards that goal. Okay. But what I find a lot with teams is they you sort of focus so myopically on the sort of tactical spec, you know, the stuff yeah. that needs to be done. And my favorite types of Kanban boards actually are ones that are hybrid boards that combine the goal yeah. with the more sort of, you know, tactical tasks or experiments or things to so run. So can you explain how that would break down? So instead of like epic story task, how, do, how does this work? You know, I just, you know, the, God, people have a emotional reaction to the word epic. epic it's but, like, a bad word. but let's just say, <laughs> I'm going to even abuse it even more. Let's just say a okay. business, business epic. My heuristic is who could I walk to in the company and have them get it? That's, that's as a product manager, because you walk around a lot. That's my yeah. thing. So, okay. so I usually break it down something like missions and initiatives are things that I could walk down to a CEO and say in a tweet, this is the initiative. Great. I, a, a business epic in my mind is something that, yeah, the CEO will get, but like a lot of the VPs and directors and other people will get like, and the accountants will get, and people will get, and the team will also get it. They'll say, right. ah, I see that's doing it. And then again, this is this crazy game of decomposition. I've been in organizations where you've had a, like high level visions, then sort of initiatives, 
then business epics, then what you might record epics that are filled with stories that are filled with tasks or whatever. Okay. It's going down. So what I'm proposing is instead of, you know, a good exercise for a PO is instead of filling your backlog with the tactical features, you know, yeah. the, the, depending on how you, you know, the deliverables, the deliverables right. yeah, the deliverables are a great way to say it. You know, you fill it with something like on the level of, you know, increase adoption of our accounting feature by this amount. Okay. And, you know, people will disagree with me. They'll say like, well, you can, how can you just hand that to a team? I'm not suggesting that at a certain point you don't break that down. But what I like to say to POs is fight, like fight your inner urge to break that down early and see if you can get close to that being actionable before trying to solution around it. Because okay. you might find another way to solve that problem, right? Yeah. So I'm just proposing it's another way to think about it. Like, and again, I mean, I've seen teams that run three boards. You know, they've got like a, they've got a sprint board, which is just right. what's happening right now. They have kind of an epic board and then they have an initiative information radiator. You know, all yeah. three of those things running at the same time. Does that make any sense? Did I answer your question? Or oh, make, totally. It more yeah, it's awesome. It makes total sense <laughs> to me. Um what about dependencies? You talk about visualizing dependencies. How do you do that with your teams? I don't know. String. I mean, okay. Well, no, I mean, I'm seriously curious about yeah. that because as a project manager, I know totally how to do that in a Gantt chart. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've, I don't have a good way of doing that on a task board. You know, I think that, yeah, I mean, string. The, the, okay. If you're doing a visual thing, I, I think that the tools, tend to obscure what the dependencies really mean. And okay. I, I think, you know, you've got different types of dependencies. If all pieces of work flow through the same set of things, so you're always going to have QA or you're going to always have things like that, like that can be baked into your visualization, assuming that all the work runs through that, right? You yeah. get some columns on the board. Other, you know, I think that program level boards, man, it's so funny when we talk about scaled agile and things like that. Yeah. I'm not sure the organization's, in 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 the complex what i would call like service ecosystem and i call software as a service which is a lot of the products i work on okay as a service ecosystem it is it is rare to find a single team that's operating in a complete vacuum now it doesn't mean that they don't have autonomy to drive their solution and don't have autonomy in their space but man i mean we had at zendesk you know it's like 60 plus teams in eight different countries yeah. um so anyway, my point is, is that I think that certain dependencies and constraints are inevitable. What I don't like to see, and I think I alluded to this in the blog post, yeah, was that we tend to, we tend so much to want to have the, the, I use the word fiction, but like the fiction of our autonomous cross-functional self-organizing team. Yeah. And then poor people like UX or ops or data scientists or the other people kind of trying to help that team from the outside. If you just observe the board, if you just observe the sprint, no one would know that any of that stuff existed. You know, yeah. like no one would know that there's upstream dependencies. No one would know that there's they're waiting on people. You might see some blockers on the board or whatever, but I'm definitely I understand the pushback on. Kanban method that has a principle called start where you are. You know, the yeah. idea is you don't rock the boat, you start where you are. 
Right. I, I understand the pushback to that. I think that like a team can invite new ways of working and just launch into the new way instead of just, you know, drudging through the old way. I think that that's valid. I do think that one very good lesson for start where you are for, you know, even scrum teams is visualize all your dependencies as they exist outside your team. Um, and you may choose to work in a sprint, but they might not be working in a sprint. <laughs> well, yeah, it's really interesting because it creates instead of a two-dimensional view of the work, like a multi-dimensional view. Of totally. And, and that's the thing that the one, again, I just don't like to oversimplify. So like, you want to make it as simple as possible, but no simpler or whatever, whatever the yeah. saying is. So it's like the teams that spl artificially split stories, you know, so that like they pretend that they have had a sprint. Yeah. It's kind of like what is actually going on. And often you'll hear something messy, right? Like you'll hear something like, well, we have an initiative to increase adoption of the accounting feature in the next three months because we've linked that to revenue. But we're trying to release some experiments and we have an ongoing beta program where we're doing customer calls every Thursday and we're releasing every single day with CICD and we have a usability test when we can do it. I mentioned this in the talk, like all these different things. And right. we want to do our retros every week and we're onboarding a new team member who really we want to pair with and check in every single day. And the initiative is open-ended, but you know, when they're available, people from the company come down and walk down the hall and do a little like review with marketing on it. That's how the real world is working. <laughs> yeah, which is so, complicated. Yeah, totally. And so I think that like the one beauty, I guess, of Scrum is that it sort of tries to streamline that. Like we'll use these rituals. We won't have too many meetings. We, you know, we'll try to, but you know, a but lot in of practice, it's messier in, pra in practice it's messier. And, you know, I think that we should visualize that we should just, you know, start where you are with that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, to do that. And I would say that a lot of times too, you know, for the, the audience, like doing, you know, moving from waterfall to, you know, more iterative approach, like this is an absolute spectrum waterfall, the word because of a various history inspires such an adverse reaction in, yeah. in the agile community. You can't have this conversation with agilists because they'll bite your head off. Look, a lot of the orgs that I know that claim to be the most agile teams are yeah. waterfall with agile on the delivery side. Yeah. That's just how it is. That's how it is. And it's a massive spectrum. Um, you know, I would argue, for example, there's a spectrum between delivering a backlog filled with features, which are guesses, to then even pushing it even further, a little bit more extreme, to pushing them as goals and experiments. So... I would just suggest that to the audience too, that it's, it's way more nuanced and there are benefits towards adopting all the lingo and going full hog and just crossing your fingers. In my mind, there's also benefits to reflecting on exactly what's happening. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and um, yeah, being a little bit more pragmatic about it, just finding stuff that works and being okay with it, regardless of whether you're agile yeah. or not. I mean, that's the question. What does working look like? At yeah. the end of the day, I would say to like, what does awesome look like? And you might go to a team and they'd be like, well, awesome would be like, maybe we don't have so many bugs to fix. They, they literally yeah. say that. The next team will say, awesome is having like, knowing that our work has absolute impact with the customers releasing every single day when we can or when we need to. 
and knowing how our work connects with the dollar amounts for the company and removing features that aren't working and being super happy and moving forward in our careers and learning new technologies and learning all that. And sometimes you'll find those two different versions in the exact same company. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to work with, you know, so for a lot of the folks that are maybe in the waterfall world, you know, I would advise like explore, do your own, be a seeker for a little bit. Like we talked about earlier, like, yeah, find out what awesome looks like maybe in your, like, who's the best at doing hotels. If you're in the hotel business, right. what are, what are they doing? Like, and then say to yourself, well, hotels are being disrupted by Airbnb. Oh, okay. What's Airbnb doing? <laughs> right. right. Go explore it all before you lock into one. Yeah. Get us, get a sense of what awesome looks like, because at the end of the day, that's how you'll inspire the team. If you take, especially if you take them along on the journey where I work often in San Francisco, you get a really weird dynamic that people, some people have been in very quote unquote, high performing orgs. Some have been in high performing orgs that are terrible places to work, <laughs> but yep. they're high performing. Some have been in, you know, is that still high performing? I would say maybe it isn't. Some yeah. are from orgs that they've only done startups and every startup has been like a nightmare experience for the last eight jobs. You're, you know, you're throwing everyone together. And so I, I don't know, that's another part of this is trying to reach out to the people on your team and understand their background because very few of the people I deal with these days, it's the first time they've experienced agile. I don't know about you and maybe because of your line of work, you deal with a lot of people who this is the first time they're experiencing it. But for a lot of the people that I work with, it's more about them unlearning all the bad experiences and abuse they've had. <laughs> See, I get I get um, a lot of people who it is their first time. But the thing that I've started to get more recently, which is totally throwing me for a loop, are people that have never done Waterfall. Interesting. Which I'm just like, wait, what? I don't <laughs> I can't, I can't get there in my head. That's fascinating. Yeah. For any of us who, have, I mean, I remember when for I did the my, old people like, yeah. Oh, you're, you must be okay. You're part of that generation. Um, but yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't even know cause they have no frame of reference for, for half the stuff I'm talking about. I think, well, one interesting thing too, is I don't think we acknowledge enough the degree to which it is an arms race of sorts, right? Like yeah. software and the sort of mutability of software and being able to change it. Now that we're delivering products, you know, I said I had a CD-ROM game. I'm not going to change that. Yeah. Now, once I shipped that gold master, there's no change, right? Right. Um, and the mutability of software that we have, and then you see the teams that are pushing the limits in terms of DevOps and CICD and like scaling their systems and doing things. We often kind of imagine this as sort of one static right way. And really, this is an environment pushed, pushed and pulled by technology and by competitive landscapes and disruption in certain businesses. I would suggest that, you know, folks on the podcast check out like the DevOps enterprise uh, talks from 2017. And I forget the exact name of it. It might be um, if you just Google DevOps Enterprise Summit, you hear old school companies being faced with existential crisis. Yeah. And having to reinvent how they do ops and like move their delivery times from 10 months down to one month. And that's a massive success. And then you hear the next company that's moving from one month down to one week. And then the next yeah. company that's moving. So we're all on our own journey of this, right? So, um, I mean, I guess that's what makes it really interesting. Yeah. And there's so, no one right answer. Yeah. And context matters. Like you said, like a lot of the younger people that I deal with, they've just never known what it would be like 
to plan anything. <laughs> yeah, so. I... <laughs> Kids today. Um, Kids today. All right. So I've blown the time box, but I really appreciate you doing this. If, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to reach you? Uh, the best way, you know, t- Twitter. So it's John, J-O-H-N, uh, Cuttlefish, C-U-T-L-E, Fish. Um, and that's usually a good way. I check that often. Uh, I don't – I need to do a better job of keeping up with the medium comments well i'm gonna um, but, put i'm gonna put the a link to your twitter and to medium your stuff perfect. On medium twitter well. yeah t- twitter twitter is the best way at the moment and i i love having you know direct conversations with people to beyond 280 characters uh cool when people want to chat about that and yeah that's that's the best way check check out the uh check out the blog i, I don't really have any i upcoming events i'm expecting a child in april uh, so that's an event. Yeah. That's the first, <laughs> that's the first <laughs> an increment so of work. That's the, uh, <laughs> it's a fixed date variable. What is it? Fixed state variables. No, so, I mean, scope. We've got 18 years. I don't know in terms of project lingo, what having a kid is, but, um, <laughs> what you got to do is make a big Gantt chart and baseline the whole thing. Yeah. That's and actually, then you can really... have meetings with your kid as they grow and say, look, you're not following the plan. <laughs> that's really actually Give them a change fun. request form, corrective action form. <laughs> It'll be great. That's awesome. Well, the, <laughs> the funny thing actually, even to the whole theme of the whole talk is someone was saying is, um, having having a kid is the best example of having to decouple cadences and doing a hybrid uh you know phase gate approach mixed with totally iterative approach and that you're going to experience both so i thought that was good um (laughs) i i am speaking at a a conference in florida the lean agile i guess it's lean agile us or something conference um that's going to be interesting you know i i i definitely relate to some of the lean I relate to it all, but some of the, the more sort of whole, as a product person, you're swimming in the org, right? Yeah. Like above the teams often and on the teams. And so I think I relate to some of the lean ideas of like more kind of global whole systems approach, you know, a, a, a poorly functioning product org can just drown any team that tries to participate. It doesn't yeah. matter how effective the team is. We'll just kill whatever the team wants to do. So I do like some of those kind of lean concepts of more sort of whole system above the team stuff. So I'm in, I'm excited about that. If anyone's in Florida or on the East Coast, it should be good. And I think that's in February. Cool. And I'll make sure to include a link to that as well. And hopefully at some point I, we can do another one and talk about your writing process because I would love to dig into that at some point as well. Oh, just just do it and don't care too much about what people say. And <laughs> No, I mean, seriously, that's 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 follow your own passions. You. Yeah. Well, just just write lots and time box <laughs> time box you're writing okay. and um you know i i final tip use i use an app called flow state which is a writing app and it's similar to the app called write or die but you okay. basically give yourself a time box and you have to write the whole time or else it deletes everything you've written wow so you can set it for 15 minutes and then you know 15 minutes you can speak from the heart through writing and write a couple thousand words and then kind of then the craft is more about like, uh, you know, cutting away uh, you know, awesome. what doesn't make sense. So, yeah, that's my writing advice. <laughs> cool. I'll make sure to include a link to that as well, man. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate cool. it. And Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year to you too.